If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet PlushCare, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi there, listeners. It's Friday, which means that it is time for Art Curious News This Week, our short-form news roundup meant to bring you up to date on some of the latest goings-on in the realm of art history. As always, I am your host, Jennifer Dassel, and we've got some great stories to share with you today, Friday, January 20th, 2023. For today's first story, I am sharing a follow-up from my lead story of last week. In Art Curious News this week for January 13th, I discussed a New York Times article about the firing of an adjunct professor from Hamlin University for displaying a 14th century image of the Prophet Muhammad in a global art history class. As I mentioned last week, this was huge, huge news. And it was a story that touched on everything from the quality of life and wages provided to adjunct professors, freedom of speech, religious tolerance, academic freedom, and even the state of art history as still a very Eurocentric field. This week, the New York Times followed up with a report that Hamlin University released a statement apologizing for their previous comment that the display of the image of Muhammad was, quote, Islamophobic. The reasoning for this about-face, the Times added, the lecturer is suing the university for religious discrimination and defamation. The lawsuit argues that the lecturer has experienced not only emotional distress and loss of income from her firing at Hamlin, but that such claims of Islamophobia and more could potentially mar her career in perpetuity, especially in this age where everything on the Internet follows us everywhere forever. And the claim is made doubly huge when stories like this reach national attention. In their follow-up statement about the Islamophobia comment made previously, Ellen Waters and Fainice S. Miller, university chair and university president, respectively, noted, quote, Like all organizations, sometimes we misstep. In the interest of hearing from and supporting our Muslim students, language was used that does not reflect our sentiments on academic freedom. Based on all that we have learned, we have determined that our usage of the term Islamophobic was therefore flawed. It was never our intent to suggest that academic freedom is of lower concern or value than our students. Care does not supersede academic freedom. The two coexist. Unquote. This is a statement that, as the Times reported, even some Muslim adherents agree with. The Times article quotes Jelani Hussein, the executive director of the Minnesota chapter on the Council of American Islamic Relations, who concurred, saying, quote, Although we strongly discourage showing visual depictions of the prophet, professors who analyze ancient paintings for an academic purpose are not the same as Islamophobes who show such images to cause offense. A quick moment here for Jen's point of view. I still feel like this is a very sensitive topic and agree that Hamlin should have proceeded more carefully from the start. But overall, from an art historical perspective, this is welcome news. 
to know that we can showcase a wealth of Islamic art that does, in fact, include the occasional image of the Prophet Muhammad is to show a different perspective of Islamic art. It can also provide an example of how religion and religious declarations can and do change over time. That at one point, an image of Muhammad was a permitted form of representation, at least in some form or fashion. And again, anything we can do to expand what we share in art history classes is a good thing. I say this as someone who studied French art history in depth and who came up in art history in a time when I only had two classes outside of the Western art canon. I had an introductory course to Asian art and then one class in Chinese landscape painting. That's it. No Middle Eastern art, no African art, no Native American art. All of this was stuff that I've had to learn on the fly as I progressed in my career. So having professors out there who are actively working on rectifying this lack only puts the next generation of art historians in a better position to continue expanding narratives of art history. Onward we go to our second story this week. This week, we learned that a former employee from the Art Institute of Chicago allegedly stole over $2 million in museum funds over the course of a 13-year career at that storied institution. The former employee, a man named Michael Morello, has been named in an indictment via Chicago's U.S. Attorney's Office, which charged him with bank and wire fraud. According to the Chicago Sun-Times, Morello, who was a payroll manager for the Art Institute, apparently routed money into his own bank account after disguising the payments as ones going to other, and sometimes former, employees. The Institute became suspicious of Morello's actions in 2019 and later fired him, reporting the events to local law enforcement. In the everyday world, and I'm using everyday in air quotes here, $2 million is a huge honkin' load of money. But let me just say that within a large institution like the Art Institute of Chicago, that's not as much as it might sound. Now, I don't want to underestimate the severity of this crime, nor the burden that this absolutely put on the museum, but it does provide a certain amount of perspective. A lot of that is also due to the time span involved here, 13 years. As a spokesperson for the Art Institute noted to the Sun-Times, quote, The cumulative loss was significant, but because of the length of time and manner in which it was taken, it did not impact decisions around staffing, payroll, scholarship funding, programming, or other financial aspects of the organization, unquote. So for that, at least, we can be thankful. And between this and the recent news report about a shyster inspired by the film Office Space, who skimmed off hundreds of thousands of dollars from his company, Zulily, I think I have had enough with fraudulent money practices. And we've just begun the first few weeks of 2023. Let's take a little break before we get back to more Art Curious news this week. Please support me and the show by listening to a couple of ads, or again, join me over at Patreon and support this show with an ad-free feed for the price of a latte. That's just $4 a month for ad-free content over at patreon.com slash artcurious. So a quick thanks and welcome aboard to this week's newest patrons, Michelle M. and Patrick F. Big ongoing thanks, too, to my VIP patrons, Flamestress, Gaston, Stephanie, John, JL, Rhonda, Lance, and Robin. We will be right back. Thanks for listening. A few years ago, I began composting in my backyard. But has it been easy? 
Ugh, I wish. My family is constantly fretting about the composition of green waste versus brown matter. I wonder if I'm throwing in too many coffee grounds or too many banana peels. Not enough cardboard. In short, I love composting, but doing it was actually way more complicated than I had expected. But then I got a Lomi. Lomi is a countertop electric composter that turns scraps into dirt in under four hours. With the push of a button, my food scraps, even those mystery containers of takeout that are languishing in the back of my fridge, are all gone, all done, without mess, smell, and when it runs, it's quieter than my dishwasher, and it feels good too. Since I got my Lomi, I throw out way less garbage, and that means I'm not going to send things to landfills that produce extra methane. Instead, I turn my waste into nutrient-rich dirt that I can feed back to my plants. I have way less garbage, I'm minimizing my carbon footprint personally, and I'm helping to grow my garden with less effort, confusion, and mess. If you want to start making a positive environmental impact or just make cleanup after dinner that much easier, Lomi is perfect for you. Head to Lomi.com artcurious and use the promo code artcurious to get $50 off your Lomi. That's $50 off when you head to L-O-M-I dot com slash art curious and use promo code art curious at checkout food waste is gross let Lomi save you a cold trip out to the garbage can the new year is here and i am committed to kicking it off right by finding small ways to help me look and feel my best Taking care of my skin is a huge part of my commitment to self-love and self-care. And that is why I am excited to partner with Apostrophe, the sponsor of today's episode. Whether you are dealing with breakouts, signs of aging, or acne scarring, Apostrophe's mission is to empower you and help you feel confident and comfortable in the skin you're in. Apostrophe is an online platform that connects you with an expert dermatology team to get customized acne treatment for your unique skin. Through Apostrophe, you can get access to oral and topical medications that use clinically proven ingredients to help clear acne. You simply fill out an online consultation about your skin goals and your medical history, then snap a few selfies, and a board-certified dermatologist will create your initial customized treatment plan. Apostrophe offers access to prescription treatments for all types of acne, too, from hormonal acne to facial acne and even back, chest, and butt acne. As someone who has experienced her share of adult skin issues, I am happy to note that Apostrophe can be a game changer for me in my skincare goals. Getting something that is tailored specifically to me and my unique needs is priceless. And the fact that I can do it all from the comfort of my own home without even dashing off to a pharmacy is huge. And I bet it can make a difference for you, too. We have a special deal for our audience. You can get your first visit for only $5 at apostrophe.com artcurious when you use our code artcurious. That is a savings of $15, and this code is available only to our listeners. To get started, go to apostrophe.com slash artcurious and click get started. Then use our code artcurious at sign up and you'll get your first visit for only $5. Thank you to Apostrophe for sponsoring this episode. Welcome back to Art Curious this week. For our next couple of stories today, I'm talking museum lending and artwork ownership. First up, the bigger of the two stories. I've mentioned in a couple of episodes here in the past on Art Curious News this week about potential repatriation of one of the most controversial collections of all time, the so-called Parthenon marbles, sometimes known as the Elgin marbles, that are currently on view at the British Museum in London. This week, 
The New York Times had a huge and wonderfully in-depth article that gives us a little insight into the behind-the-scenes machinations between the British Museum and Greece as they battle to come up with some sort of agreement about the marbles. Now, as always, I've linked the full article in the show notes of the podcast app today, and I've also included it over on my website in today's blog, artcuriouspodcast.com. But here are some details in brief. The news was first broken by Tanea, an Athens-based newspaper that reported that while highly secret talks between both parties have reached, quote, advanced stages, unquote, they have also reached a brief stalling point. Apparently, the chair of the British Museum, George Osborne, has been meeting with the Greek prime minister, Kyriakos Mitsotakis, and current talks have paused, hopefully briefly, to take concerns of both sides into consideration. While the Times notes that no deal is imminent, I still see this as a huge sign of progress, and certainly also a call for some cautious optimism. Both sides are proposing various options for long-term loans and phased rollouts of returning these incredible artifacts, which have been held by the British Museum for nearly 200 years after they were removed from Athens by the Scottish diplomat Lord Elgin. For the British Museum, these marbles, and also the famed Rosetta Stone that allowed for the translation of Egyptian hieroglyphs, these are the jewels of their collection. And the museum's decades-long drive to become the world's collection— i.e. a truly global representation of art and culture, means that they certainly aren't looking at repatriation without significant ifs and requests. But if all things go as planned, Ta notes that at least some of the Parthenon marbles could be returned to Athens by as early as this year. And that would be absolutely giant news. And it could also have earth-shattering effects on museum collecting and museum studies, too. Ugh, there is so much to talk about here. So if you are interested in learning more about this super complicated issue, please do let me know, because if I get enough feedback on this one, I might see if I can do a longer episode just on this topic, maybe even bringing in some expert voices on the matter. So let me know. Email me at jennifer at artcuriouspodcast.com. The last story for today is one about museums jockeying for loans as well. In a truly lovely video, the mayor of the French city of Amiens put out a very small request. Would Madonna, yes, that Madonna, the singer Madonna, be willing to lend a work that is most likely in her collection? Seriously, this video is heartwarming in its sincerity and its politeness. And therein, the mayor, Brigitte Fauré, notes that Madonna is the probable owner of a work of art by the painter Jérôme Martin Langlois, and the work is titled Diana and Endymion. And this work was last shown publicly in Amiens prior to World War I. And because Amiens is garnering to be named the European capital of culture in 2028, they are hoping to showcase this painting that was once part of their city's cultural landscape if they should be lucky enough to win the title. According to the French newspaper Le Figaro, this Langlois painting disappeared from the record books until it or a copy, or a duplicate, arrived on the auction block at Sotheby's New York in the late 1980s. And this is where Madonna potentially scooped it up for $1.3 million. I say potentially because art world sources have not yet been able to verify if it is truly part of Madonna's collection 
or if it is no longer part of the collection. And also, the singer has not yet responded, nor have, you know, her people. But Madonna is known to be quite the art collector. And if this work is hers and she agreed to lend it to Amiyam, that is just awesome. And I am all for any opportunity that allows works that are held in a private collection to come out into the public limelight, at least for a little while, so that more people can enjoy it. That is all that I have for you today. Thank you for listening to Art Curious News this week. Just a quick reminder before we go that my awesome trip to the Netherlands with Like Minds Travel in celebration of the largest Vermeer exhibition in history is almost sold out. We only have a few spots left, so if you want to come with me, register right now. You can get all of the details on my website, artcuriouspodcast.com. In the meantime, thank you all for your support and for listening today. We will be back next week with another roundup of your news as well as the final episode of our current season. So until then, stay curious.